This is Polyoptics, shining a light on the theater of politics. And now, from New York, here's Josh King. Thanks for joining us as we pull back the curtain on the events that shape American politics and drive the images and headlines. Polyoptics, the only show of its kind on the air today, and you hear it first on POTUS. This week, it's snowing like a banshee in the Northeast United States, but subtropical subtropical temperatures prevail in Sochi, Russia, site of the 22nd Olympic Winter Games. In a minute, we'll talk to Doug Mills of the New York Times, usually its photographer covering the White House, who these last few weeks has been perched on the white stuff, beaming back an amazing set of images from Rosa Couture and other Olympic venues in what I think is the ultimate busman's holiday. Then... It's David Shipley, executive editor of Bloomberg View and the former op-ed editor of the New York Times. Back in the day in the 1990s, David and I were colleagues in the White House. He a speechwriter for President Clinton and me the guy who created the scenes in which those speeches were delivered. The journey from journalism to government and back again, back first to a global institution of opinion and now at what has to be described as a massive upstart, Bloomberg View, David Shipley at the bottom of the hour. But first, it's over to the Caucasus Mountains, his long lens aimed at the downhillers, giant slalomers, half-pipers, and the slope-stylers. What it's like to cover the games in the fast-moving digital era. Doug Mills, welcome back to Polyoptics. Hey, Josh, great to be with you. I really appreciate it. Thank you. I'm seeing some coverage today through your Twitter feed of bobsledding, the German bobsled team. what What have you done today? And then let's work backward and tell me how your games have been. Sure, yeah. I started the morning with... um what's called the skeleton, uh, women's skeleton races, and uh, started out there looking for some There's a big race tomorrow night, and we're going to do a story uh, about the uh, upcoming battle between the U.S. and Great Britain. There are two uh, great skeleton uh, riders there, uh, both females again, and uh, it's shaping up to be quite a race. Right now they're wanting two going into tomorrow night's final. So I started my morning there, and then... Uh, was just out for some bobsled stuff, and uh, lo and behold, unfortunately, it was a terrible accident at the, at the bobsled track today where um, before every race, they send out what's called a forerunner, and it's a, uh, a bobsled, but it's not the actual competitors because the competitors follow right after. And uh, usually in between the breaks, they have someone cleaning the ice, and there are lots of crews out. Well, unfortunately, one of the crewmen did not get the word that there was a bobsled on the track, and uh, he apparently was hit from behind. He never saw the bobsled coming as he was cleaning the track. And uh, he was hit from behind, smashed some lights above him, and then crashed back down onto the ice. Um, I got word that somebody had been injured. We thought that it was somebody in a bobsled, but it turned out to be somebody being hit. So uh, I ran all the way down from the top of the bobsled down to the bottom, and um they were carrying the gentleman away in an ambulance. And the latest word is that uh, he has uh, two broken uh, legs, and some internal injuries, and a uh, severe concussion. I'm looking at your photo of the uh, of the injured person going into the ambulance now, Doug Mills. And as a journalist, you know, you're, you're assigned to a sporting event, but memories of 1972 and other major issues affecting the Olympics onward, you always have to have your news cap ready to cover the the games, not as a sport, but as a, a global event, don't you? Yeah, it, it was amazing because it, it's, it happened so fast. And, it, and like, you know, I mean, everybody's on their on edge, here, you know, given the terrorism alert and the Black Widow and talk of all of that. And uh, you do get thrown into news events quite often at these Olympics. And uh, the last time when I was in uh, Vancouver, 
unfortunately, there was a uh, Russian, um, I think it was Luge, um, athlete who was killed. And uh, I happened to be at the track that day also. Now, moving on to the sport itself, Doug, you know, we've always talked when you've come on the show about the distinctive Doug Mills style that might have a, a camera perched above the scrum of photographers shooting an event. I saw one of your pictures of people watching the bobsled training in silhouette. How do you how how do you take your lens toward a sport like skeleton, which the racers look basically the same run after run, uh, let alone the the color of their suits and the nuances of how they're either succeeding or failing are escape the eye's view. So how do you try and bring that story home when a lot of the runs are so repetitive on bobsled and luge? And then we'll get to halfpipe separately because that's one one where you see so much more emotion. Right. That night at, uh, when I came over for the, uh, the luge, again, just like you're saying, everything became very repetitive and you see, you know, racer after racer go by. Mar- I always marvel at how fast they're going you know, somewhere around 80 or 85 miles an hour and they go by. And um, it all started to look the same. So I started to put my thinking cap on and tried to step back and look at it from what a sp- perspective uh, as a fan would look at. So I walked around and tried to, you know, find something unique and different. Uh, luckily, I found some fans that were uh, silhouetted against the, um, the the bright ice, and they were holding a flag. And uh, it turned out to be a really nice picture. I was happy to I stepped away from the action, which sometimes you really have to do is just step back and look at it from a fan rather than a sports photographer. So um, that it paid off that day. Different kind of sport, though, when you're covering halfpipe in this evolving story of Sean White. He decides to skip the slope-style event to focus on becoming the first male to win three golds and three successive Olympics. And the conditions on the halfpipe, the slush at the bottom of the, of the turn, uh, and then his so expressive face. How did, you, how did you approach that story? Well, yeah, I mean, like you said, that John pulled out, which was a huge disappointment for everybody here when he pulled out of the uh, the slope style race. Because um, again, I think he was, you know, at least a medal contender, if not the top contender. And um, so, going into the half life, I think that just put more pressure on him. And his first run during the semifinals was fantastic, and um, his. Uh, Second run in the finals, or his first run in the finals, excuse me, uh, he fell. And then the second time he fell, uh, I had a colleague of mine who was shooting the finish line because he wanted to get, you know, what we call a jubilation uh, after or dejection after the race. And uh, so I was up in the up on the uh, side of the the, uh, the actual half pipe, which is you know quite a task in itself. It's a you put on what are called ice crampons, you attach to your boots, and you're basically climbing up, you know. Uh, 45 to 50 degree, you know, angle straight up. You're standing at that angle the whole night, which I was standing there for three hours. And obviously, Sean was the last um, rider, you know, the last former, and he came down. And after his first run, I thought he's got to nail this every every run, or he's not gonna not gonna advance. And um, after his final run, where he fell. I thought, you know, this is a bigger story than whoever wins a gold medal for us. And uh, the fact that he didn't get a gold medal, I knew would be a fantastic story. So I ran from the top. Of, again, there's a lot of running, even with these ice crampons, ran down the hill um, and found out that he takes, you know, the lift back up, which is like a, a pull, pull, little pull string that they grab onto, and, and it takes him back up to the, to the uh, top of the half pipe. And uh, lo and behold, I ran down there. I think I was myself and one other guy were the only ones down there. 
and uh, he was completely in shock. I felt really bad for him because he was dejected, clearly gone out from the, the public's view and was out of his way and just put his hand up on his head in complete disgust, and uh, I think he was completely shocked by it. But again, you also have this uh, amazing midair shot of the Russian-born Swiss uh snowboarder who who dethroned Sean. What was it like to sort of see a new king emerge through your lens? Yeah, I think it, it, it's not a sport that I'm, you know, that I've done a lot of shooting. And um, and when when I saw this, you know, everybody started talking about, well, there's a lot of new young blood in this sport. And, you know, Sean has been on the top of this, you know, hill for a long time. Um, eventually, he's going he's gonna to get out. We thought he would go out a little more gracefully than he did, you know, but uh, unfortunately he didn't. And, there, I mean, you think about it, everybody who, for the U.S. team, were, were a bit older and they, um, you know, didn't have the legs maybe or maybe felt the pressure. Maybe these youngsters just didn't have the pressure on them and didn't, had nothing to lose. I mean, going up against Sean White has got to be, you know, pretty intimidating. But if you've got nothing to lose... You might as well go for it. Both at the half pipe and up on Rosa Couture on the downhill and other and other alpine runs, to your eye, are the conditions as troublesome and challenging as they seem to be reported back in the U.S. press? Oh yeah, there's no question. Um, it's it's warm, it's sunny. It's, we've only had a couple cloudy days, and um, it's very soft at the bottom of the course. They've actually t- um, for the uh, the men's combined race tomorrow has been moved up an hour because of the weather and uh, because it just gets so soft and it slows the riders down. It's really a disadvantage for the, for the final uh, skiers who were, who were starting last because, you know, it, the warmer it goes and the temperature can go up quite a bit in just an hour. And that's usually how long these races take. So yes, it is. It's very soft. I mean, I wasn't on the, the slopes today up there, but yesterday there were people with their in t-shirts and, Shirts off, and you know it's it's very warm compared to what's happening back on the East Coast. It's uh, it's quite a contrast, that's for sure. You've got a big uh, piece in the New York Times today on this amazing tie for the women's downhill uh, between uh, Tina Mays and Dominic Giesen of Slovenia and and Switzerland, uh, retrospectively. What was it like to watch this? developing story unfold of one racer coming down, uh, an, an, an unheralded racer, and then an exact tie by hundredths of a second, although the Times points out that the folks in the timing house actually have thousandths of a second, and they could determine a winner. Yeah, that was quite the buzz around the, uh, the press room last night that secretly knew who, who, who was faster in the race and who, if they'd gone down to 1,000, would have been able to, to pull that, uh, that winner out. But unfortunately, you know, or fortunately for both of them, you know, they both got a gold medal, and uh, the timing is not that critical. It's, it'll be interesting to see if they, in the future, at the next Olympics, uh, impose that. But it was one of those races where, you know, we thought it was going to be the USA's uh, Mancuso, that she was going to be the, uh, the top skier. I mean, in the, the uh, combined the other day, she had the fastest downhill, so she was the favorite going into it, um, you know, and would be closely followed by the, the German. But, you know, again, letting it all out, and maybe Mancuso had the pressure on her because she had won the other day in the, in the half of the combined. So, um, yeah, I mean, and honestly, Josh, when, when, the, when the race finished, those, the photographers finish line where I was didn't even know it was a tie. They, you know, one of them reacted, the other one reacted like she won, and we thought, well, one of them got the silver. And it wasn't until the medal ceremony 
that we actually found out because we didn't have access to that knowledge. You know, we did, we saw a scoreboard, and it didn't have the, the exact times on there. It just had, you know, what the places were. And at one point, I think they said first and second. And um, so, you know, it wasn't until the medal ceremony that we found out. And then, it, obviously, when they said there were two gold medal winners, it was, you know, history. I mean, it was the first time in history that's ever happened on the Alpine. For anyone who thinks that a journalist's role at the Olympics is uh, gorgeous hotel rooms and late sleep-ins to take advantage of the time difference, uh, that is not the role of a New York Times photographer. So logistics, Doug, uh, how much sleep are you getting? Where are you staying? How are you feeding yourself? Oh, Josh, that's a great question. Um, the, the, the sleep part is probably the most difficult thing you do. I, um, I'm usually back in my room by midnight, get to bed before 1.00. And I'm up at uh, 5.30 or 6 every morning, and I'm trying to cover at least two events, maybe three a day, which is the most logistical thing because there's one hub where all the photographers and all the media can go to, and you get a bus from there out to a venue. If you want to cover another venue, you've got to get on a bus that may take 45 minutes to get back to that hub and then go to the event that might be, you know, 30 or 45 minutes away again. Um you realize what sleep deprivation does for you and your memory goes awry. People are losing things, leaving things on buses. You know, my eyesight starts to get really, really weak about uh, 11 o'clock when I'm looking at my computer screen. I am now having to put on glasses when it gets late at night. Something glasses I don't use in the morning, but glasses at night when your eyes start to really fade. Um, I, I'd be dead if I didn't have glasses at night, but, uh, and I think uh, the food, the food has not been great. Um, my hotel, we've had a lot of issues with the hotel I'm staying in, too. It clearly was not ready when we got here. Uh, my, you know, not that I have time to watch TV, but the TV and Internet was just turned on yesterday. Um, there is a, there's very limited, where, where I'm staying, there's limited food as far as some of the restaurants. They're not open yet. There's a food court in the mall that's right next to us that, uh, was open when we got here. The only thing that was open in it really was a grocery store, but now they have two or three little kiosks of food upstairs. There's a uh, Subway place and a sushi place and an ice cream place. Uh, most of my food, I've actually, because I don't have time to sit down at a restaurant or anything, uh, there's a grocery store inside the mall, and I'll go in there and you know buy some sort of groceries. And uh, starting... Two days, two days ago, they started serving hot food, you know, much like in a Whole Foods or Harris Teeter or something like that. You'd be able to go in and get food from a hot bar. Uh, it's limited. You know, there's some roasted chicken and uh, lots of things that I have no idea what they are. I don't understand the language on the stickers and the people behind the counter can't tell me what they are. So I really shy away from anything that I don't know what it is. But obviously, I can tell what a roasted chicken looks like and... Um, that was really good. I had that last night for the first time. And uh, drinking a lot of water, taking a lot of vitamin C, and uh, just trying not to get sick and, uh, you know, trying to survive. But uh, I think you've heard all the horror stories. I've heard the horror stories, and I'm just wondering, you know, from the honest relationship that you and I have, is how true are they? I guess I guess they are. Well, my yeah, my room the first night, first two nights, I turned on the tap water in my shower. It was yellow brown water coming out and there were rocks and you know debris like little pebbles in the bottom of the tub when i got out of the tub that had come out of the faucet that lasted about i don't know three or four days now it's clear it's still a little yellow but it's still clear um 
The second room I went into flooded out the first night I was in it. Uh, there was a broken uh, pipe behind the behind the wall, and so I came out into the common area, and it was completely flooded. So I got moved to another room. Uh, maid services picked up. The first few days we didn't have any towels. Um, and uh, let's see what else. It's just it, it has not been. I, I just think they've been behind the you know behind by maybe a month. You know, a lot of the places are just still opening. There's still construction going on in where the media is staying and a lot of the hotels. There's a beautiful Marriott here that uh, looks like it was probably the first thing finished. It's gorgeous. It has a beautiful restaurant bar inside. And uh, I think maybe, you know, if they keep the construction up and keep going on, it'll, it'll all be done in, uh, you know, maybe a month. But uh, there's a lot of details that are just not tidied up. There's a place called Rosa Couture, which is uh, – just up from the little town in where Gorky Plaza, where I'm staying, and that's that's a little more, you know, further along as far as construction. Um, more restaurants, a couple bars opening up there, Irish pub and places like that. But again, for me to go up there, I have to get on another bus and then take another bus back, so it's not really convenient, especially given the limited time that we have. At the end of the day, Doug, there's a huge investment by NBC, the global news organizations that are covering it, certainly the New York Times. There's a major uh, investment and risk by Vladimir Putin and the Russian government and those that have uh, contracted to help build these venues. But, you know, you are within feet of the athletes uh, who, for whom this event is really designed, the people who grew up in small mountain towns and figured out how to ski fast or jump far or sled, uh, sled fast. Your, your, look, your eye through the lens at whether they are having the, the rightful joy that they deserve for having got to this level and then competing and then in, in the rare instances actually winning and getting on the podium, is it the same as you've ever seen at Olympics or is there this overhang of Sochi isn't ready or we're in a, a country where uh, you know, politics and social issues are not as advanced as they are back home or in other countries? Yeah, I think the socialism is a big deal, and I, we really haven't seen any evidence of it here. I don't think the athletes have either. And I think inside the bubble, so to speak, and at the at the actual venues, I think uh, they're they're pretty much finished now. I think there was a lot of construction going on the day before, ramps and so forth. But for an athlete, I do not think that they feel that it's not ready. I think all of the courses, you know, everything has been beautiful. Um, especially on the mountain, all the slopes, you know, are groomed and there's probably, you know, plenty of snow for them off, off the, you know, the, the beaten path. There's not as, there's not any snow down here in, um, Rosa Couture at all now, but, you know, as an athlete, I think, you know, it's, it's a great opportunity. And once they're in the moment and in the games, I think they forget all about that. It's all about competing. They're striving to do the best they can and they're, to bring home the gold or any medal, really, for their country. And um, I think they, they're not affected by that. Maybe their living conditions are not what they were, but I, I don't know. But I know, you know, things around the outside the bubble a little bit, so to speak, um, are, you know, are still underway. Doug, just finishing up before we let you get to bed and think about uh, the coming day and days and really week left you have of, of shooting these Olympics. When we had you on our show last, we were talking about the 50th anniversary of the March on Washington, Martin Luther King's speech, and the interesting angle that you got of 
President Obama and ex-presidents, but we talked in some detail about the access that you and your other independent news organization photographers were getting uh, compared to what the official White House photographer was shooting and putting out uh, as part of the public domain. And then weeks later, it sort of metastasized into this massive issue in which you were front and center with Jay Carney uh, and others uh, in the in the White House press corps and, and on the White House staff. Uh, I know this is sort of 5,000 miles away, but you're going to come back to this world in a few weeks. Was there any progress from where those conversations started to where we are today? Yeah, Josh, it, it was a huge, you know, huge issue. And uh, there's been, there's been, uh, yes, there's been progress. Uh, we've met with Jay and his staff a couple of times. Um, and I think the, um, once this done, I think he, he, he and the staff are committed now to trying to give us more access for the still photographers and to try and, um, you know, fix the problems that we've brought up. And uh, I think they are committed to doing that. I think, you know, everybody uh, felt that it was uh, something that was long overdue, but uh, luckily I think we're moving forward. We've had a couple photo ops that, uh, before I left to come here that were uh, unusual and uh, that we that we got to do. And after requesting, I think the uh, communication line with Jay has been opened, and he's been very open to listening to us and uh to, um, you know, really, really wants to make this work because uh, I think in the end they, they, they don't want, you know, this to be happening. You know, they don't want the, you know, the still tires of the media worry, you know, complaining all the time about access. And I think they're trying to do, you know, more things to, to open up the access. And I think, uh, like I said, I think from the president on down, I think they're committed to doing that. And uh, hopefully it will continue to move into the, you know, into this year. Um, and if it, if it doesn't, then I'm sure we will, uh, you know, be emailing and trying to get to, to, uh, Jay Carney as much as we can. But again, he's been, uh, he's been open and listening to us. And, uh, I've, I've spoken with him more in the last uh, month, Josh, I probably did in the first, uh, you know, four years. So, uh, I think that's progress and I think the, hopefully it, it will continue. Doug Mills of the New York Times from somewhere in the Caucasus Mountains of Russia reporting, photographing the uh, Olympic Winter Games in Sochi, Russia. The last time I was with you in Russia, my friend, I think we were stranded outside Boris Yeltsin's dacha outside Moscow somewhere. But I I envy what you're doing. I'm watching every shot that you're making. Uh, Have a great final week. Don't get the issues that have have afflicted Bob Costas' eyes and, uh, and travel safe from venue to venue. Well, I really appreciate you having me on, Josh. It's uh, it's quite a pleasure, and uh, yeah, I'm looking forward to. Uh, I guess we got another little over a week, and uh, get plenty of sleep when I get home. But I appreciate you having me on. Thanks, Doug. Travel safe. All right, Josh. Take care, buddy. After the break, it's David Shipley, executive editor of Bloomberg View. POTUS. POTUS. History in the making. Sirius XM 124. Back now on Polyoptics, Sirius XM Channel 124. I'm Josh King, and I'm here with my old friend David Shipley, executive editor of Bloomberg View. David, welcome to the program. I want you to be on for a long time. Thank you, Josh. It's a pleasure to be here, and even nicer to be seen next to you. Wonderful in the main Sirius XM studios with Michael, the first time I think we've ever recorded the show from here. Uh, I've been could have done it outside though. Oh, not today. not yeah. today, not today. Um, I've been looking over Bloomberg View over the last few days to get ready for my conversation with you, and I'm seeing what's on the homepage today. What what have you got percolating this week? 
This week, I mean, today was certainly uh, dominated by uh, Comcast Time Warner, and it had a sort of a spread of opinion. Susan Crawford, who was with the administration, uh, arguing that it was maybe not such a good idea. Matt Klein, a young blogger that we have, arguing that it is a good idea. And uh, when I was leaving the office, we were trying to figure out in the editorial what we thought. Are you a Time Warner Cable subscriber yourself? Thankfully, I well, maybe I shouldn't say thankfully, <laughs> but uh, recently I moved over to Verizon Fios. Well, I've been, I, I had the luxury of being a Comcast subscriber back in Hartford, Connecticut, and for the last four years with Time Warner Cable. And I know it's creating a behemoth. I know there are, uh, there are going to be challenges uh, uh, to, its, uh, to its size, but I liked my Comcast service a lot better than I've, I've liked my New York City service with Time Warner Cable. Yeah, that, that, um, you will get no argument here. What else is at the top of your site today? Well, we had a really interesting piece this morning by this guy, Michael Strain of AEI, arguing for a $4 minimum wage. That uh, Put a he, lot of people back to work with that, he says. That he says would put a lot of people back to work. Have a wonderful uh, young sports writer by the name of Kavitha Davidson. Uh, who did a really interesting piece this morning on minor league ball players uh, trying to unionize? Um, Jonathan Bernstein, who recently joined us, JB of Plain Blog on politics, uh, has done a number of pieces today already. One um, sort of taking apart a Politico piece on uh, advice for Hillary. Uh, did, also did a terrific short piece on lowering the age of voting from 18 to 17. Um, so you'll see there's a whole bunch of stuff going on. There's a uh, Barry Ritholtz who writes a lot about finance. There's a terrific guy named Matt Levine who also writes about finance, uh, but finance inspired by Nicholson Baker and David Foster Wallace. You'll see a fair number of footnotes in this writing. Um, Megan McArdle, who has uh, really been tearing it up from a certain political perspective on Obamacare yeah. and a bunch of other stuff. I guess you have about how many staffers right now in Bloomberg View? Right now, we're a little over 25, though we have some people on contract. And so back in the day when you were running the op-ed page for the New York Times, I assume that most every word and every comma passed uh, in front of your eyes. Are you as as focused on everything that goes out under the Bloomberg View name as you were back in the Times days? I am. It, it's hard. You know, there was a, there was a famous Scotty Reston line uh, about the New York Times that you couldn't work at the New York Times and read the New York Times at the same time. Op-ed was uh, small enough that we uh, had the good fortune to grow when I was there from sort of a single page in the paper to three pages on Sundays and then eventually to this uh, parallel opinion space um, on the web. Uh, and so most days I would get a chance to at least read through everything before it went up. And I still tried to do the try to do the same here. We're going to take a spin through a lot of the things that were that are on Bloomberg View now uh, that David Shipley also worked on during his New York Times days and even some of the speeches that he wrote for President Clinton. Uh, but first, I'm, I've always been fascinated in you because as the guy on the receiving end of what everybody thought was their perfect 750 words for an op-ed oh. piece for the New York Times. You must have received hundreds, thousands of emails every week, uh, the right pitches, either people who were thinking that they, they had all the answers, David, mm. and you even wrote a book about email called Send. Yeah. Well, here's, here's the thing, you know, yes, at, at op-ed, you are uh, flooded with submissions. And the, the thing that you have to remember first is, as a reader, and as an empathetic reader, is that someone has taken time out of their life to write something. 
you know, instead of going to the movies or going to the gym or doing whatever it is that they wanted to do, they were so inspired by a topic, whether it was, you know, animal treatment or saving the Middle East, that they took time to sit down and put words together, which we all know isn't the easiest of tasks, and then to actually send it in. So even though we had to say no far more than we were able to say yes, um, I hope we always said no with, uh, with a degree of respect. It's also really hard to explain to people why something gets in and why something doesn't get in. Um, for the Times, you know, you have an incredibly small space uh, with two columnists on the page um, and art. You often wind up with room for about 800 to 900 words. Um, so, wow, so how do you figure out what is the one thing that would make the page that day? Well, the, the, the first thing you have to sort of realize is that the page will never be encyclopedic. It's, it's simply too small. Uh, so it will always, by nature, be idiosyncratic. Then if, I mean, when I was op-ed editor, I would take a look at what the editorials were saying. I would take a look at what was going on in the letters page. It was taken, I would take a look at what the columnists were up to. And I would do my best not to replicate that or to come from a different perspective. So, for instance, if you were to send me a piece, as you did... Um, and I One, think many times you saved me by saying not quite right for, th for this but, issue. But, but, you know, wonderfully well argued, you know, excellent point, would have been absolutely fine, but maybe it was close to something that we'd run five months before. Maybe it echoed something that was going on the editorial page. Maybe it replicated something that David Brooks had done. So, you know, that's an internal calculation you have to make when you are trying to decide what goes in that incredibly valuable space. And it's, it's really a drag to say no a lot. Well, I, you said no to me once when I, I always knew that David Shipley wanted to see people taking a slightly different perspective than you might expect them to take. So I think in 2008, I argued from a Democratic perspective, what an amazing pick John McCain has made in Sarah Palin. And you, uh, you said, maybe not for us today. <laughs> but, but, you know, I, th I probably agreed with you at the time. You know, when I saw her at the convention, I, I was thinking, that's an amazing pick, Josh. Um, talk about some of the things, David Shipley, that, uh, that are in that have been running this week, because it's been a fascinating week. Every week is. But but this week uh, we heard and I want to run some of the audio yeah. edit, uh, opinion pieces that you can find at Bloomberg View. One of the people that uh, are under your roof, a, a favorite of all of ours, Margaret Culstrand, some of her views this week on a faux pas that Tim Armstrong made in one of his mm -hmm. town halls at AOL. It's true the rich are different. They're much more easily hurt. They're still smarting from the mild criticism during the financial crisis when President Barack Obama called out the, quote, fat cats who were pocketing huge bonuses even as they were being bailed out by the government. The criticism didn't cause anyone to change their ways or any bonuses to be returned. Those at the top don't recognize how lucky they are. Armstrong is a bundle of blunders, but he took home $12 million in salary anyway. In the offices of Bloomberg View, did the Tim Armstrong issue this week uh, provoke a lot of other commentary beside Margaret? It certainly did. And if you were to go to the site and search for Tim Armstrong 401k, you would find a multiplicity of views. I mean, Margaret argues from a very um, from a from one perspective, and she argues it in a very effective way. But you will find Matt Levine and Megan McArdle and some other people coming from different perspectives and. 
at least my vision of an opinion section is one where you really have a multiplicity of voices and sort of sorts out in the end. If you can get enough people speaking truthfully about the issue as they see it, coming from different perspectives, you can sort of have, uh, you can sort of be in a better position to make up your own mind. Compared to the 900 words you used to have at the Times, this must feel like a sprawling living room of a suburban Maryland mega mansion in which to put your editorial. <laughs> it does. It does. But, you know, you, you find, too, that with the web, you have this illusion of infinite space. Um, you don't have infinite display space. And so there is only so much that you can flag on the homepage. Um, One of the big challenges at Bloomberg and one of the things that I find most exciting is that if you're at the Times, which has been doing what it's been doing for a very, very long time, um, you have a pretty good chance of getting right into the middle of the conversation without an enormous amount of work. Um, When the Bloomberg job came along, one of the fascinating and exciting elements of it to me was to try to think of myself as more of a gorilla. I was going to have to, not a hairy gorilla, but a GUE gorilla, um, thinking that we were going to have to fight for every page view, that we were going to have to fight for every click, that we were going to have to be sort of agile and ingenious in order to work our way into the conversation. Thankfully, that's paid off. You know, every month has gotten better than the month before it uh, in terms of both traffic and more importantly, in terms of engagement. Um, happily, too, on the Bloomberg Terminal, which is a whole other audience that we have. Um, but you really have to you really have to fight for it. And so, while it seems like you can do a lot of different things, you really want to focus on doing a few things and then doing everything in your power to get those things out into the world. And you also have some print outlets, too. You can put your stuff in Bloomberg Businessweek, San Francisco Chronicle, Los Angeles Times. You you can spread your writers around a little bit. We do a little bit of that. I mean, Businessweek is a fantastic venue for it and for us. And I I think what Josh Tarangel has done with that magazine has been nothing short of extraordinary. Um, And so our editorials uh, appear in excerpt form uh, in the magazine. And a lot of our writers... We'll also do front-of-the-book essays. Um, Megan McArdle just did a cover story on e-cigarettes. Jeffrey Goldberg, who is with us full-time. That saving potty piece is amazing. It was really terrific. And he's going to be doing more for them. And uh, so it's a terrific venue for a lot of our wonderful writers to write in different forms and to expose them to an even grander, better, newer, fresher audience. Another piece of big news that broke this week, I'm not sure what night it came, uh, maybe Sunday night, but the news that Michael Sam of the University of Missouri uh, had come out as homosexual, uh, and he would uh, he's going to be in the NFL draft in the coming weeks. And uh, I did hear an audio editorial from Bloomberg View, and I think I recognize the voice. Let's hear it. The NFL is not powerless. It should use its popularity and success to expand the bounds of what's normal and to diminish fear rooted in ignorance. Its early response to Michael Sam's news has been encouraging. At some point, an athlete's sexual orientation will cease to be homepage news. Until then, it's up to leagues, teams, athletes, and fans to proclaim that it should not matter. Boy, David Shipley, you like being an audio voice? You know, Josh, I do my very best not to listen to myself. <laughs> <laughs> but I do, I, I do like finding ways uh, for the editorials to get out that way. And um, somehow we have developed this amazing SoundCloud following where uh, people are listening to, to these and probably more importantly, they're listening to Margaret and Al and Jeff. 
and a lot of the other uh, bloggers and editorialists we have who will record daily. So news came about Michael Sam. It was an evening break, right? right? I think. And what goes through your head to say, I want to go to the office tomorrow morning and either get the team to write stuff yep. uh, for Bloomberg View, and I also want to write something that we put the editorial stamp on from Bloomberg View. Well, one of the really exciting things about View to Me and one of one of the, the things that drew me to the project is that we could create our own work structure. Um, and part of that structure is that we weren't going to be siloed. Everybody was going to do a little bit of everything. So unlike other operations where you have sort of an editorial board, you have a columnist core, you have an op-ed staff, um, we have a place where everybody does everything. So one day you might be writing the Michael Sam editorial. The next day you might be writing a column. The day after that you might be commissioning an op-ed piece or doing two or three blog posts. The idea wasn't really to have a, uh, a baton death march, but to create a situation where your mind is activated every day. You're doing something different every day. So, in fact, the group got together on email the night before when the Michael Sam stuff broke and started going back and forth on an editorial. And so one guy who was home at NIAX sent out the first note, and then somebody else added to it. And by the time we got in the morning, there was basically the outline of an editorial. At the same time, we had a number of bloggers and writers getting ready to to go on it. Kavitha hit it. Um, Jonathan Mahler, a wonderful writer who writes for us about sports, too, um, wrote something. Uh, and then I think there may have been one or two other pieces. So people kind of swarm on these things with the idea that, you know, wh- how do you build a readership? Well, you build a readership, I think, these days by publishing smart stuff as quickly as possible. You want news front of mind um, so that it can be useful to people as they sort of figure out this flood of information going past them. Based on your thinking through the Michael Sam issue, how do you think his draft choice changes from where it might have been a week ago? Boy, I think that's a really... He would have been a high choice anyway. He would have done pretty well. It'll be really interesting to see. I have no idea. Another thing this week, uh, and you know that earlier on in the hour, we were talking from Sochi, Russia, with your old colleague, my my good friend Doug Mills, who's been shooting the Olympics all week. And as I listen to some of your commentary, David Shifley, and I want to hear it in a second, it doesn't sound like you're a big fan of the Olympics in Sochi. Let's hear it. Overspending on the Olympics can do real economic harm. Montreal spent 30 years paying off its debt from hosting the 1976 Summer Olympics. Greece spent $16 billion on the 2004 Games in Athens, piling up debts that contributed to the collapse of its economy six years later. With each successive tale of financial woe, sports economists and athletes have called for a single, permanent venue for the Summer and Winter Games. Olympia in Greece, which hosted the Games for almost 12 centuries, is often proposed for the Summer Games. The Winter Games could take place in Japan, say, or Switzerland. Or maybe there could be five permanent venues in Africa, Asia, Europe, and North and South America, and the Games would rotate among them. David Shipley, I declare that idea a (laughs) non-starter. Well, you know, every editorial page has to be vaguely utopian, um, but also practical. You know, it, it, to, to us, it made sense. Uh, you know, there, there's an added uh, complication associated with that one is that, you know, I, I work for someone uh, who was, uh, you know, put a tremendous amount of time and effort and thought and really believed that the Olympics should have come to New York. Yes, that's true. Um, and so perhaps arguing for a permanent summer site in Greece and uh, another site somewhere where, you know, they plan to have snow for the next uh, 
15 or 20 years might run counter to his feelings. Um, but, but who amongst us is to deny Vladimir Putin an opportunity to write a check to his friends? Absolutely. Absolutely. And look, they seem to be enjoying themselves. I mean, you can you can mountain bike in, uh, through Sochi right now and get a tan. Speaking of the founder of Bloomberg and Bloomberg View, he's now uh, out of office and has an office, I would, I would expect, at the philanthropy not far from where you sit. How much direction do you get from him about what 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 tack Bloomberg View takes? Yeah. Well, we're actually no longer at the philanthropy. Okay. We started out at the philanthropies and then moved down to the main Bloomberg newsroom on Lexington Avenue uh, in in late December. Um, and he has been probably the world's best boss in that he has said, you know, go off and, you know, write these editorials. Um, you know, look, his his politics are, are fairly clear. There had been, uh, you know, 12 years of very um, clear statements that told you exactly where he stood on certain issues. And all of us came because, you know, we are an opinion section. We are in a news section. The editorials in the main um, are representative of his beliefs or what we imagine his beliefs to be, um, because those are the things that we believe. Um, that, uh, you know, his feelings about guns, his feelings about gay marriage, immigration, um, fiscal responsibility are all things that, um, are completely in sync with everybody who came on board the board. So the specifics, um, you know, aren't, we, we don't get into a lot of specifics. The, the only thing that he asks, and I think any great boss publisher should ask you this is, you know, think through what you're doing. You know, if you want to paint the walls purple, um, I may not agree with it, but give me a really good reason for why you wanted to do it. And if you have thought it through and you make the case, so be it. David Shipley, executive editor of Bloomberg View. One more thing before we step back a little bit in time. Another thing that came out this week was the return to the road of New Jersey Governor Chris Christie. And before I get to the thoughts on how he did this week, I want to hear a little bit of Margaret's views back when the issues started to break. For such a smart politician, Governor Chris Christie sure can be dumb. How stupid is it to go after an ally who could hurt you by revisiting his awkward teenage years? You, the governor, were too cool for school. Your political friend, David Wildstein, whom you appointed to a job at the Port Authority of New York and New Jersey, was not. Christie pummeled Wildstein at a news conference January 9th, just after he said he learned that the closing of several lanes of the George Washington Bridge in September might have been part of a political vendetta. Christie claimed that Wildstein was a nobody back when they attended Livingston High, not a friend. Quote, I was the class president and athlete, he said. I don't know what David was doing. That's Margaret Carlson on Bloomberg View. David Shipley, uh, the Morning Joe crowd has de- has declared Governor Christie back because he was able to get out on the road and use a little bit of humor on this stuff. Right. Well, I, you know, I think, Josh, uh, since you and I have been around a while, we know that the uh, half-life of the scandal seems to be a lot shorter than it was uh, back when we were working for another administration. Um, Especially when perpetuated by <laughs> Diane Blair's papers. <laughs> And I think if you, uh, you know, I think if you keep your chin up and you keep going, you have a fairly good chance of of getting through it. I mean, who knows? This is one of those things where, um, you know, we probably haven't negotiated the last twist and turn. Did you editorialize very early on that Christie was proving himself not ready to be president? We did not do an editorial on Christie. And in fact, we uh, stayed away from endorsements. 
Uh, the mayor, um, back when he was mayor, did run a signed editorial under his byline uh, endorsing President Obama right after Sandy. Um, we did not do any endorsements, and I don't know if we are going to going forward. Um, some of it was, uh, you know, we're young. Uh, it is, uh, you know, we're no longer a startup, but we're, we've been around for a little, and there, there seemed to be something that would be vaguely hubristic, hubristic um, about uh, editorializing and endorsing um, so early on. So it's something that we're, we're open to, but I don't know if we're even going to get to it uh, on the next cycle. When we were starting our conversation, David, we uh, you mentioned that you're across the street from Simon & Schuster, where you first knocked on a door and looked for an editorial job in New York. But where, where I met you uh, was in the Warrens of the old executive office building down the Eisenhower Executive <laughs> Office building in Washington, D.C., as a speechwriter for President Clinton. Why the detour from editing, publishing, down to speechwriting? How did that happen? Um, well, you know, Josh, everything has been a detour. I mean, it's been a very happy detour. That that particular detour, um, we have uh, Mr. Tony Blinken to thank. Exactly. Um, uh, and Tony is, uh, you know, high up in the Obama administration, is uh, famously featured in the uh, Osama bin Laden The Pete Sousa picture. The yep. Pete Sousa picture. Um, but Tony and I uh, wound up going to a rock show. I forget where. I, my memory tells me it was the 930 Club. Um, at the time, I was executive editor at the New Republic. And, uh, you know, we had a lovely time, a really nice evening. And then I got a call a couple weeks later saying there was a job opening up in the Clinton speechwriting office. Would you be interested in, in trying out? Um, this was uh, late 94, early 95. So the first sort of the first group of Clinton speechwriters were all on the verge of collapsing from yeah. exhaustion. You know, they had gone through the campaign and then they went through those uh, first couple of years when the president was giving probably five to ten speeches a day. Um, and, uh, you know, I think a lot of them were just uh, it, it had hit the limit and were collapsing. How many times can you congratulate the NCAA winners with exactly. novel <laughs> ideas of rhetoric? Exactly. And uh, so then I, uh, I met with Don Baer, who is uh, the head of speech writing at the time, later the communications director. And uh, wrote a sample speech that uh, recently I went back to uh, just to remind myself of how absolutely horrible it was. It was a, it was a King Day speech, and it was sort of everything that a speech for Bill Clinton shouldn't be. It was low on substance and high on rhetoric yeah. and high on uh, purple prose, especially for you know for a president who can or, or as uh, as some would say the tone poem. It was the tone poem, and it was uh, you know I. I still find it remarkable that I actually got the job, um, but then showed up in uh, in early 95 and uh, was there until the very, very end of 97. So just before Oklahoma City and left uh, three weeks before Monica, just like me. Yes. Yes. In fact, was um, in in uh, had taken a break afterwards before returning to the times and was in the Atlas desert of Morocco with a guide who really only spoke, spoke French and Berber and had heard something on VOA that said Clinton scandal. <laughs> <laughs> and it took days to get back to Marrakesh. And even those, it was pre-internet. And uh, so I, I raced to find an international Herald Tribune that was probably five or six days late 
So I came into the scandal in a very weird way. You know, I was getting bits and pieces and it was, uh, the chronology was all messed up and it took getting home to find out what exactly had happened. You look back at the speechwriting days with, uh, with fondness, were there days that just killed you? What was the, what was the high point? What was the low point? Oh, I look at it with, uh, complete joy and gratitude that I had a chance to to be there to work for both President and Mrs. Clinton because I w- went off to write for her for about six months. Mm-hmm. Um, it was it was hard. I had a you know uh, my daughter had just been born and so I was pretty much um, on call around around the clock. Um, there were uh, speeches and moments that just felt, absolutely wonderful. I was writing a lot on clean water at the time. And, you know, when you are, when you're getting the glass of water for uh, a young child and you're writing about EPA regulations, um, it all kind of, it all kind of sinks up. Um, so it was remarkable. I, I absolutely loved it, found it exhausting. Um, but, uh, am so grateful for that experience. You and I were talking recently as you made your way from Washington and the White House back to New York and the New York Times about this pivotal role that David Shipley played in the 2012 campaign when Mitt Romney decided to write uh, an op-ed about the auto bailout and it needed a headline and the writer himself doesn't get that privilege, does he? The writer does not get that privilege. I think writers are probably going to be requesting that privilege from now on. But traditionally, at the times, you never gave headline approval. I mean, reporters didn't have approval of their stories. And what was the headline? The headline was, Let Detroit Go Bankrupt. Come with, from the top of your pen, or how, how did that come about? Uh, it, was, it was a group effort. Um, it is chronicled in, I think, a very uh, straightforward and honest way in uh, Mark Halperin and John Heilman's book. Um, you know, at the time, I had always felt, um, you know, that if somebody is writing an op-ed piece, they are a guest on your page. Um, so you would never commission art that would, say, undercut um, the piece. Uh, by the same token, you would never write a headline that would undercut a piece. Um, so the effort at the time really wasn't to do anything that would be harmful. It was meant to be an accurate reflection of the piece in terms of a headline that had to fit a certain amount of space. Um, the other point is at the time that Mitt Romney was making this point, this was not a completely unpopular argument to make. Um, you know, Americans were getting tired of bailouts. And to say, do we really need one more bailout of this industry? Um, you know, the, the uh, auto executives, as you probably remember, had, had just uh, flown to Washington in their private jets. jets. Yep. Um, good optics there. So good optics there, I know. Uh, clearly they could have used your, your hand. Um, so it, it really, uh, the idea that we were trying to pull the rug out from under him is, is something that just couldn't be further from the truth. So as we look forward, uh, David Shipley, to the election to come and, as you said, to the idea of the woman that you wrote for for six months, then First Lady Hillary Clinton and now uh, former Secretary of State Hillary Clinton, here is a bit of Al Hunt on uh, Hillary's chances in 2016 on Bloomberg View, and then we'll talk about what you think. There are a few certainties right now. One, it's very likely, not a slam dunk, that she runs. Smart Clinton, I puts the odds at 80%. If she does run, look for Vice President Biden not to run. 
Neither will Senator Elizabeth Warren or any other prominent Democratic female. The Democratic sisterhood is vested in the former Secretary of State. Now, it's not possible to envision a Barack Obama equivalent at this cycle. Then again, eight years ago, few envisioned candidate Obama. One lesson from Clinton's previous run, you can't corner a nomination, you have to capture it. David Shipley, we heard Rand Paul bring up the Lewinsky issue again last week, and uh, Diane Blair's papers were out this week. Uh, There's the sense, and I talked to Halpern about this, that, and this is almost my view, which is after so long in the public eye for both President Clinton and Mrs. Clinton, and the wonderful lives that they live, and the esteem in which they're both held, and the, their ability to be a grand statesman on any stage that they so desire, the thought about getting back into the political muck, if I were going to be a 68-year-old Hillary Clinton envisioning a public life that was going to take me up to age 80 and thinking about my ability to interact with grandchildren and have a, more of a relaxed life, I might not run either. Yeah, it certainly, as you lay it out that way, Josh, it makes uh, perfect sense. Um, I mean, it's not as if things are going badly. And more to the point, it's not as if she isn't having this enormous impact uh, the world over. If you look at what she is doing through her arm of the foundation, um, there's a tremendous amount of great work going on. Um, I think they probably know more than anyone else, too, the limits of presidential power. Um, that you can't get there and wave a wave a magic wand, and that in uh, this sort of sclerotic era, uh, it can be doubly hard to get things done. That said, you know the job of uh, the person there is to uh, persuade, cajole, um, and see what change can be positively affected. And uh, she probably has the ability to do that. But, you know, I, I feel uh, vaguely schizophrenic on the issue. You know, part of me sees uh, what she's doing now and uh, thinking that it is both effective and laudable. Um, part of me thinks that she would be a wonderful president. What's, uh, what should we look for in the days and weeks and months ahead at Bloomberg View? Well, actually, there's going to be a fair amount. Um, we, uh, you know, we have sort of, we are consolidating in some measure. I mean, we're, we're, we're still young, but we are evolving. But we are evolving sort of toward a tighter core of writers writing more frequently. And so a lot of the people you're going to see are Jeffrey Goldberg and Megan McArdle and Barry Ritholtz and Matt Levine and Jonathan Bernstein and a few other people who are going to be coming in who are going to be writing at a fairly high tempo. Um Thankfully, we are going to have a new redesign, or not a new redesign, a redesign, because we never really had a design to begin with. The, the idea when we got to Bloomberg was to, you know, really start as quickly as possible and then figure out what we were and then design around it. So uh, in the next month, you're going to be able to see a design that is really more reflective of what we are trying to do, where the hierarchies will be clear, where you'll sort of get a sense of this waterfall of information where the stories will be identified both through subject matter, which is what you as a reader want to go to, and then the identity of the person writing about it. So it's something I'm incredibly excited about, and I think it's going to um, take us help take us to, if not the next level, I- ensure that our progression, this really happy progression, uh, continues. So I'm really excited about that. Are there opportunities for people with interesting views to do a one-off appearance? Absolutely. There, there is an op-ed space, and there are there are there's a whole, me- 
whole mechanism on the uh, on the page that if you go to the page, you can find a way to submit. The other thing, if you do happen to go to the page at Bloomberg.com slash view, there is a newsletter called Share the View that is easy to sign up for. It's actually very easy to unsubscribe from if it makes you unhappy on a daily basis. But it's a fantastic way of seeing what we're doing every day. And uh, that has been growing a lot, I think, because people are finding it uh, to be of some use. David Shipley, executive editor of Bloomberg View. Thanks so much for joining us in Polyoptics. Josh, an absolute pleasure. That's it for another edition of Polyoptics. Our producer is the extraordinary Catherine Caperton. You hear us here each Saturday on Sirius XM Channel 124 POTUS, Politics of the United States. Missed any previous episode? Find them all on polyoptics.com and follow us on Twitter at Polyoptics. Keep your eyes on the visual. Think about how it moves you, and we'll talk about it next week. Thanks for listening. I'm Josh King, and you're on POTUS. Thank you.